today, is that they believed that every word in the Scripture was the Word of God. And so they had intense struggles and debates over what the Word meant and how to obey that Word. But one thing they were unanimous in is they would obey the Word as they understood it. So in Jesus' day, it became their tradition before they got to the Word of God to commit themselves or recommit themselves to God through the reciting of the Shema as a way of saying, God, when I hear and receive your word, I plan on obeying it. So as we come before God's word today, let's recommit our own lives to be patterned after God's word as we recite a a part of the Shema together. If you'll follow after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. And together, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Please be seated. Some years ago, among a number of people of my generation, we began to be worried about things called subliminal messages. Do you remember those days? Do you remember the days that you would watch on TV but wonder if under the surface they were sending you a secret message into your subconscious? That you would show up in the theater and you'd be watching a movie, but actually underneath the movie it was telling you, eat it, Joe's. Or maybe something more sinister that aliens had captured the movie and underneath it was saying, surrender now, earthlings. Do you remember those subliminal messages? Messages that were underneath the surface and yet very real as well. When you come to the scripture and you come to the stories of Jesus, I think, especially in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit has done such a beautiful job of retelling these that there is a message on the surface that is helpful, encouraging, and challenging, but also there's a message underneath the surface, not meant to coerce, manipulate, or fool anyone, but it's available if your eyes are open and you're willing to dig further. There are, are more messages in the story uh, from the Holy Spirit than just meets the eyes. And so in the Gospel of John, one of the great things you can do when you read it is to look at the characters in the story and try to stand in their shoes. Uh, as Walter Wink, a biblical commentator, has said, uh, too often when we read in the Gospels, we all want to stand in Jesus' shoes. And we're Jesus in the story and we think about it. But he said, I wonder how the Holy Spirit might speak to us if we went and stood in somebody else's shoes in that story. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want uh, to recite for you in parts uh, the story of the man born blind in John 9. And then after each part, we'll think about the character and reflect on that character for just a few moments. The story begins in chapter 9, verse 1. As he walked along, Jesus saw a man born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus replied, neither, but so that the works of God might be revealed in him. For while it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. For night will come when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he spit on the ground and with saliva made mud and he put it on the man's eyes and he told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. 
Well, the very first character we meet this morning are really the disciples. And when they come upon a person in obvious pain and suffering, what they want to do is debate about why that suffering occurred. Uh, theologians do that uh, all throughout history. The word is called theodicy, when you try to figure out why bad things happen to good people, as if anyone of us on earth could ever know that uh, while we're on earth. But they do that, and so they involve themselves in assigning blame for situations. There's a tragedy, uh, there's an illness, there's a breakup in the relationship, and the important thing is to assign blame. But Jesus will have none of that. Rather than try to talk about why this happened, why there is suffering, Jesus wants to go and alleviate the suffering. Jesus doesn't want to debate why these bad things are occurring. Jesus wants his people to get in there and start to alleviate the effects of the suffering. And we've had so much in our world recently, uh, Katrina and uh, earthquakes and, and Haiti and Chile. And, and, and we'd be tempted to sit around and talk about, well, is the end of the world coming? Why are these things going on? But I think Jesus in our midst says, don't worry about that stuff. You can't know the answer, and you might not even like the answer if you knew it. About 250 uh, CE, what, AD, uh, there was a tremendous persecution of the Roman uh, Romans against the church, against Christians. And their bishop wrote when they said, why is all this happening? And this is what he said. It's happening because the wealthy Christians aren't giving enough to help the poor. That was what he said God had revealed to him about these persecutions. Do we really want to know the answer? We might not like it. And I think Jesus says, don't worry about the answer. Go in there and where there is need, help. Where there is despair, Offer hope. Jesus doesn't want to talk about why bad things are happening. He wants us to get in the middle of those things that are happening. And so they were blind, these disciples, and they were blind to the suffering of people because they wanted to debate rather than to help. But the story continues. Now his neighbors and those who formerly used to watch him sit and beg said, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that it was he. But others said, no, he only looks like him. And the man insisted, I am the man. And they said, well, how did your eyes open? Who healed you? And he said, this man, Jesus, put some mud on my eyes and sent me to wash. And now I can see. Where's the man, they asked. I don't know, he said. The second group of people are the neighbors. Folks who ought to know that a miracle has occurred because they've seen the before and they've seen the after. And yet they cannot come to that conclusion. I believe the neighbors lived in what we might call a closed universe. They think everything is cause and effect that they can understand or that they can see or that they can measure. And they have no room for a God who intervenes, for a God who acts, for a God who sees, a God who cares. And so because of this, they ignore or miss the obvious in front of their face. It is a man whose life is changed because of Jesus. Because their minds are closed to God. They are blind to the miracle of God. But the story continues. Then they took the man born blind to the Pharisees because Jesus had made mud and opened his eyes on the Sabbath. How did your eyes open? They asked the man. And he said that Jesus put mud in my eyes and sent me to Salome. I washed and I can see. 
And some of the Pharisees said, well, this man uh, can't be from God because he breaks the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so the Pharisees were divided. So they turned to the man again and they said, he opened your eyes. What do you say about him? And the man said, he is a prophet. Well, the third characters we meet this morning are the pastors, the clergy, the religious leaders steeped in the traditions of the faith, who know the ways that it's always been done before. And because of that, when God does a new thing, they get confused. They get mixed up. And what's funny about the story is they have to turn to the layperson and say, you tell us. We can't figure it out. They're blind. They're blind because they're tied to the past. And even though their scripture tells them over and over, behold, I'm doing a new thing, um, do you not perceive it? And we talk about uh, in, in when the days of the Messiah, when, uh, when people will be healed and the lame will walk and the blind will see. And they miss all that because of their preconceived notions and traditions that they hold more important than the evidence that's right in front of their faith. It reminds me of the story of the people that are praying for the Apostle Peter. Do you remember that in the book of Acts? He gets imprisoned. So his home group, you know, his, his small group is praying that he'll be released. And he is released. And he comes and he knocks on the door. <laughs> and the woman opens the door, Rhoda, and, and she says, it's Peter. And they say, no, it's not. It must be his ghost. They can't possibly imagine that God would answer their prayers that they've been praying. Their preconceived notions are more important than the evidence of God's power right in front of their face. And so, they're blind. But the story continues. The Pharisees did not believe the man had been born blind until they sent for his parents. Is this your son, the one who was born blind, and now you say he can see, they asked him. The parents said, this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see and who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, let him speak for himself. He is of age. They said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who had already decided that anyone who believed that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And so that is why they said, ask him. He is of age. Well, maybe of all the characters this morning when we talked about it as Pastors Tuesday, the ones we felt worst about were the parents, the people who should most rejoice in that the fact their son now sees, who for his entire life has never been able to see, the ones who ought to celebrate their son's new found sight, celebrate the miracle of God, and they can't do it. They can't do it. And they go and they hide and they just push their son out there and leave him by himself. What's the problem with these parents? If something like that had happened to one of our children, wouldn't we want everyone to know it? Would we? Fear often plays a role. Fear of rejection. Fear of feeling like we'll be cast out, maybe not out of church, but just out of respectable society. You see, I think it's so American and Western in many ways that the expectation of society is that we have enough religion to be decent. But we don't want so much religion that they think we're overboard. Enough religion to be respectable, but not enough religion that we obey what God commands and we tell people that 
clearly. We won't fit. People don't want a religious nutball. Somebody who says, God told me to do it, and that's why we did it. They want someone who's respectable who says, well, I like this that God said, and I'll probably do it. And now what I don't like so much, and I don't know. That's what society wants. And when they get the other, eyes roll, heads turned. You know, think about it. Does fear keep us from praying in public at a restaurant? Does fear keep us from telling other people when God has answered a prayer in our life? Are we more worried about the opinions of other people who know and care very little about us to the opinion of God who knows everything and cares enough to die for us? I mean, which is it? Are we going to be like the parents? Well, the story continues. A second time the Pharisees summoned the man who had been blind. Tell us. How he opened your eyes, they said. And the blind man said, I've already told you once, but you wouldn't listen. Why do you ask? Do you too want to be his disciples? At this, the Pharisees hurled insults at him and they said, you're a disciple of this fellow, but we are disciples of Moses. And we know God spoke with Moses, but this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man said, now, isn't that remarkable? He performed this sign and you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to the prayer of a sinner, but that God listens to uh, the prayer of a godly man who does his will. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. At which the Pharisees replied, you were steeped in sin at birth, and you dared to lecture us, and they threw him out. And out of their midst, and out of the synagogue. Parenthetical comment. When Jesus found him, he said to him, Tell me, do you believe in the Son of Man? Sir, if you will tell me who he is, I will believe in him, the man replied. And Jesus said, You have seen him now. And in fact, he is the one now speaking with you. Lord, I believe, said the man, and he fell and worshipped. That may be the most interesting character is this man as you, you watch him go along. It's an interesting story. God does something really great for him, and all that does is get him more trouble. God performs a miracle, and he's got to explain it over and over again, and his neighbors wonder about him. His church and his parents reject him. He's got nothing but problems because of Jesus, because of the grace and love and the power of God. He's in trouble. I love this man's story because it's so much our story. And it's the story of every Christian who God does something wonderful for. uh, And we could call that salvation. We can call that healing. Just you can name it in your life. And then when you try to live it out and explain it, then you run against the rest of the world. To conform to Jesus is to not conform to the world. Because their ways are completely different. And Jesus doesn't seem to be anywhere in the picture, just like when the disciples, remember last a couple weeks ago, were rowing and rowing and Jesus wasn't there. And then he comes back in. And then he comes back in. And what we notice, though, is that during the struggle, this man's understanding about Jesus just grows. First time they said, well, the man Jesus. 
And then he goes on to say, he's a prophet. And then he'll say, unless this man were from God. And then finally he says, my Lord. Look how his faith grows and struggle. Now, it's Palm Sunday. Let me tell the obligatory Easter story. You remember the story of the young boy who found a chrysalis of a butterfly. And as the butterfly he had in a jar was struggling to come out of the cocoon, the boy thought, well, I'll help him. Took his knife, pocket knife, opened it, so the butterfly could be set free. But of course, because he had not struggled enough and gained the appropriate strength, the butterfly could never fly. There is something about the struggle with opposition, criticism, and persecution that develops in us the spiritual muscles to soar in our life. And apart from them, we will not gain strength. And apart from them, we will not gain clarity. Think of the people in your life you know who have been through a difficult loss and have kept their faith. Are they not people of greater clarity and insight than other people in your life? Doesn't their understanding somehow exceed our own? Because they developed and they've grown like this man. And then finally, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who claim to see will be blind. Now, isn't Jesus an interesting character? We know that he can heal, according to the Gospel of John, a variety of ways. He can say the word, he can touch somebody, but here he makes mud with spit. What's he doing? Well, here's the thing. On the Sabbath, it was illegal to need Make things together, dough or mud pies or whatever. Jesus is deliberately breaking one of their Sabbath rules to prove a point to them about how their religion limits their compassion. Now, there was no problem about healing on the Sabbath. You need to understand that if somebody was in a life-threatening condition, no-brainer, you do it. But if the condition was suffering but not considered life-threatening, then you couldn't do it. Jesus was saying, all suffering is serious. All suffering is important to God. God cares about everyone and their struggles. He's not delineating between life-threatening and non-life-threatening. The circle of those who are eligible for God's mercy, love, and power is much wider than the religious authorities ever assumed. Jesus is picking a fight. And he knows it because the fight is over mercy. The fight is over compassion. The fight is over the size of your heart. And for Jesus, it should always be larger because of your faith, not smaller. But people are blind, blind to the love of God, blind to the suffering of other people. And Jesus needs to open their eyes. How will he do it? Well, On this week, he will go, and he will give up his eyes, his ears, his arms, his legs, his lungs, his heart. He will give it all on Good Friday, so that the blind may finally see the love of God.